So art history has always been like a thing for my wife and I, Jenny. Um, when we were in college, we both took this highly entertaining art history course. I know that sounds bizarre to some of you, but you would go in there and like, I would always bring like a muffin and coffee. It was first thing in the morning and sit there and everyone else would like scribble notes, but not me. I would sit back and it was like this wonderful show. They would put up these giant pictures and then this, this professor would tell these wonderful stories and she moved like this when she told them. And, and I just, I loved it. Like for me, I didn't have to take any notes because it was just story time. And I couldn't forget the stories. And in that, Jenny took the same course. And along the way, we both, as we fell in love with one another, fell in love with Renaissance art. Okay? So when we would go places like the Uffizi in Florence, for us, it's not just a a collection of pretty pictures, though it is. Each and every picture, like, tells a story. It's an era. It's a person. It's a time. It's a place. It's a political situation. It's a historic story. It's looking back to ancient history, all these things from Greek and Roman and ancient history and biblical stories. And then it's also reaching forward. Like, so much of our world is now built upon what that said at the time. So it begs us to participate, to make it part of our story. And Jenny and I, we like to oblige. So I don't just see a statue of Plato. I have a talk with Plato. We don't just see uh, Cranach's picture of Martin Luther and Margarita, his wife. Notice, notice she's got this like little wry smile in that, like, like she's a nun who just got married. We don't just do that. We make it our portrait. It's like our family photo, right? Like when, when I look at like those, these marble sculpted um, statues, I think of myself, when I look at Da Vinci and the way he's like idealized the power of the Holy Family in this triangle, I think of Jenny. And of course, you know, the Dukes and Duchess, the Duke and Duchess of Urbino. We like to get into that too. Though, though all of all of these, my favorite has to be when Jenny makes Michelangelo's David Easter Sunday appropriate. <laughs> Isn't that great? <laughs> we need to frame that one. So, um, of all the artists, though, that I really connect with, there's one guy, Caravaggio, that every time I see his work, I just go like this. Like, Caravaggio, this is his, um, uh, the head of Medusa on, on, on a uh, shield. Caravaggio captures something that, for me, like no other artist captures. Like you, you look at some of his, uh, some of my favorite scenes of his. This is the calling of Saint Matthew. Matthew was a tax collector, a famous sinner. And this is the scene where they say, you, Jesus is calling you to follow him. This is the scene, dark, dark scene of the garden where Judas betrays Jesus with a kiss. Doesn't that just so capture that moment? And this, this is um, maybe not that famous or that, but, but what this, I love about this is this tells such a story. This is David who's just defeated Goliath and beheads him, but he doesn't look really happy about it. And what makes this photo so powerful to me is that Caravaggio painted his face on the beheaded head of Goliath. He is Goliath. If you get to know the story behind the pictures, you find that Caravaggio was a renowned drunk, a frequenter of whorehouses, 
and got in so many fights that to this day, the best record of his life is not his artwork, but it is his criminal record. And suddenly you realize the reason why Caravaggio could paint like no one else is that he lived like no one else. Which brings us to my very favorite work of his. It's called The Incredulity of Thomas. It's this moment, this scene, the resurrected Lord shows up to the disciples and Thomas says, I will not believe unless I can put my hand in his side. And so Jesus shows up, he disrobes and see him, he thrust it into the fold of his flesh. It's intimate and beautiful. It's haunting, it's reassuring and arresting. There are dozens of artists who could technically do a better painting than Caravaggio of this scene, but Caravaggio could do what no other artist could do because Caravaggio knew what Thomas was going through. His paintings, like his life, was extremely dark, but you notice there is some type of light emanating from each one of these because wherever there is Christ, wherever there is hope, there's still some light to cling to in the darkness of life. Like Caravaggio captures this because he knows what it's like to feel completely isolated. Everyone else experiences something and he doesn't experience it. He knows what it's like to be in the darkness. He knows that great nausea of the soul called He can paint this because he knows what it's like to be Thomas. Today we are going to be in the text from which this painting derives. John chapter 20, verses 24 through 31, the story of Doubting Thomas. It's um, famous. Uh, Many of you probably know it very well. I have personally read like um, several dozen technical commentaries on the Gospel of John, and I could explain the historical context, and I'll do a little of that, and the Aramaic and Greek and Hebrew and like how that all interplays in this. And we could go into all the technically perfect backgrounds to understanding this text. But if we don't have this type of experience, we won't understand this text. This text is fundamentally personal. It only makes sense... To doubters, like Caravaggio, like Thomas, like me, and I'm guessing like most of you. So as we come into um, this story today, the Gospel of John chapter 20, a couple words. One, uh, I want to encourage you to experience it with all your doubts in the forefront of your mind. But I want to set up two kind of foils here of like how we're going to approach this text. On the one hand, um, let me say, I, I hate doubt. I really do. I really do. In a room like this, though, I've realized that um, when the Apostle Paul talks about the gift of faith, um, when you scour a room like this, there might be one or two or three people who have like this fundamental gift of faith. Like God said it, I believe it, like it's to their core. They don't question anything. And I find that absolutely beautiful. I do. I love that. I love being around you, the two or three of you who you are. You know who you are, maybe. Like, I love that, but the reality is that the rest of us, like a disembodied hand could write on the wall, this is Jesus. And we'd be like, I don't know. Where'd they get the special effects? There's something in us that is off, that's wrong, that does not want 
to believe. So, so in this conversation, before we enter, I want to, I want to position two things. On the one hand, I do not want to be the place, the location, the community that suppresses all doubt. You, you know the place, right? Have you ever been to that church? You go there and if, if, if someone asks like, um, it, did that really happen? Like, was Jonah really swallowed by a whale? Everyone's like, what? The Bible is God breathed. And it's like, if you say it louder, that proves it better. Like, how dare you question that? And then they're shamed into saying, okay. And then they do what everyone else does. They just pretend like they believe it all. Um, there's a deep problem with that that doesn't actually help us grow. It doesn't actually deal with our junk. It doesn't actually help us meet Jesus. Um, at GVF, this is not okay. We have to be a safe place to struggle. You have to find that place, that small group, that friend, whatever that is, to say, I struggle with this. I'm not sure if I believe this or not, and that's got to be okay. So on the one hand, we've got to be a safe place to struggle. On the other hand, um, there is this uh, atmosphere out there in the world where in some churches, all doubt is automatically like considered the smartest, the best, uh, given priority over faith. Um, so when growing up, we had a family friend named, not joking, Lloyd Floyd. You see, sounds like he should have been a rock star or something. Lloyd Floyd. And he would come over to our house and um, sometimes he would sit me and my brother down. We were just kids at the time. And he'd be like, you know, they never put no man on the moon. We're like, okay, Lloyd. Like he seriously believed that that was a conspiracy. That 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 whole 1969 Neil Armstrong, one small step for man thing. They just made that up to, uh, to position America to look better. He thought the whole thing happened in Hollywood. Now here's the question. Is it possible that that happened in Hollywood? It's not a real historic event. I guess. But there's so much evidence for it. There's so many reasons. Do we really have to go back and prove every single thing that we believe in order to believe anything and have a conversation? Like, it's ridiculous if we think at that level is a conspiracy. But this is exactly what people do when it comes to Jesus. Today, it has become fashionable to brag about our doubts, to let our doubts stop us from coming to any conclusions. The word is agnostic, which literally means without ag, the ah, gnostic knowledge, without knowledge. So they brag about, I don't know anything. Um, Let's just be clear here. Agnosticism today is the preferred view. It is nice. It is tolerant. It sounds humble. It is the preferred view and the least violent way to reject Jesus. But make no mistake, it is rejecting Jesus. Jesus will not allow us to go on either of these extremes. He won't allow us to suppress all doubts, and he won't allow us to let doubts control us. In this text, he's going to guide us through both of these pitfalls when we come to this Easter Sunday. So let's look at the text, John chapter 20. If you have the text, you can follow along on your phone, tablet, book, whatever you have, but I'll have the key text up here. John chapter 20. Um, Before we get there, let's lay a little bit of context. Um, Here's this guy named Thomas. And he's been following Jesus for three years now. Like he's followed, he's seen the miracles. He's seen, you know, uh, the loaves of bread multiplied. And he's seen um, Lazarus raised from the dead. And he's seen all these things. He's followed him. He's studied his teaching for three years. And then on one terrible Friday, 
Jesus is executed in the most humiliating, public, bloody, terrible way you can imagine. He is crucified, naked, nailed to a cross on Golgotha, and he dies. The disciples scatter, and they hide. And then Sunday morning, this morning, 2,000 years ago, um, some women go to the tomb, and they look for Jesus, and they run into a gardener. (laughs) They think it's a gardener. And then as soon as Jesus speaks Mary's name, Mary, she realizes who it is. She sees him and she believes. So she runs back to the disciples and they're like, what? No way, no way. And then Peter runs to the tomb and he looks in and he sees that Jesus is missing and and he sees and believes. And then later that evening, the disciples who had followed Jesus for all these years, they are in a locked room and Jesus suddenly shows up. And they see and believe. So you have this incident in John chapter 20 where she sees and believes and he sees and believes and they see and believe, which begs the question, when we come to this text, what about me? What about all of us who don't get to see? How are we supposed to believe? And John's like, I'm glad you asked that question. Let me tell you a story. John chapter 20, starting in verse 44. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, which means the twin, One of the twelve was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. He didn't see and he didn't believe. Aren't you thankful for Thomas? I know he's like, yes, finally, someone I get in this text. So let, let's, let's remember a couple of things about Thomas. One, he is, he's not an outsider. He's an insider. So you look back in that verse and we see that he is called, um, also known as Didymus. Do you know what that is? That's a nickname. It means the twin. So like you go through the list of Jesus 12 and you've got like Peter, the rock, James and John, the sons of thunder, Thomas, the twin. Right? This does, who, who do you use their nickname? Is it someone you know well or someone you don't know? A stranger. You know, anytime someone addresses me as the Reverend Anderson, I'm like, you clearly don't know me, do you? I'm Paul. Yeah. So, so, so here, right here, the, the, you see the fact that he is an insider. And the other thing that we know is that he's, um, fully, fully committed to Jesus up to this point. He's given everything up to follow Jesus. He's taking great personal risks. Just uh, nine chapters earlier, in John chapter 11, they come to this point where Jesus is like, let's go back to Jerusalem. And, and all the disciples are freaking out. They're like, you know, they just tried to kill us there, right? Why would we do that? And then finally, Thomas speaks up and says, I guess we're going anyways. So then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. If Jesus is going, I'm going, even if it means my death. I'm going to my death because I'm going to follow Jesus. So he's no coward. He's fearlessly committed to Jesus. He's the insider. They know him. They love him. So, so in, in one weekend, we see that Thomas is, is, is there ready to die for Jesus, ready to follow him to his very death. I believe everything he does. I believe in him. And then just a couple days later, He's not sure what he believes. And I get that. So I stand up here on stage and I proclaim Jesus is enough. He is better than anything this world can offer. And then I go out there and see what the world can offer. 
And it's just like, yo, I'm like, it's pretty good. I'm like, sure, I believe this. I stand up here and say that God uses all things, all things for the good of those who love him. He uses manure to bless us, to bear fruit in our lives, that the bad stuff, even the bad stuff, God redeems that. But then I go out there and I experience the manure of life just like you. And it's hard to believe. It sounds too good to be true. So the other disciples say to him, we've seen the Lord. But for Thomas and for many of us, this just seems too good to be true. Thomas has lost everything at this point. He's literally given up everything to follow Jesus. He has placed his entire hope in the hands of Jesus. And then Jesus' hands were nailed to a cross. So at that moment, he says, I will not believe. So I wonder, I wonder, where does this kind of doubt come from? Like, does Thomas really need more evidence to believe? Do we really need more evidence to believe? Like, if I told you um, a dead man, like Michael Jackson, showed up and showed me some dance moves, you'd be like, that's ridiculous, right? This beleaguers the mind. This doesn't make any sense. Like, you can see the difficulty in believing something so fantastic. That's just not how... Things happen. But what if um, 11, 12, 13 of your closest friends, people you, you've done life with for three years, people you're super close, swore to you that a dead man came back to life? Would that make a difference? What if when that person was alive, they had actually said bizarre things like, I'm the resurrection and the life. I am the way. Before Abraham was, I am What if you had personally witnessed the same person like calming storms and healing the the sick and, and giving sight to the blind and speaking to Lazarus when he was dead and Lazarus actually came out of the tomb? What if this person had predicted over and over and over again, I'm going to be betrayed, condemned, mocked, spit upon, flogged, killed, and then three days later, I will rise. Does Thomas really need more evidence? Do we really need more evidence to believe? So here's I mean, just the evidence swirling around in Thomas's mind at this moment. Jesus did claim to be God. He really did seem to have power over nature and over death. He predicted that he would die and rise again. And now all of his most trusted friends are saying, I've seen him. I've seen him. I swear to you, I've seen him. So Thomas, you see all the evidence. It's all there right before you. What do you say? And he's like, I will not believe. So I'm not saying that um, Jesus rising from the dead is expected. It's not like traffic on 76 or a new craft brewery opening up in Phoenixville or a young woman getting pregnant in GVF. <laughs> you know, so many families have um, moved to Phoenixville, started at GVF, and then have babies that we now, in our staff meeting, when we refer to someone getting pregnant, we call it moving to Phoenixville. Has that couple moved to Phoenixville yet? Uh, uh. All right. Welcome to GVF, by the way. (laughs) So all these things, like these things are expected. But rising from the dead, that is not expected. So um, let's agree, though. If you're Thomas, at this point, you've been following Jesus for three years. You've seen him like walking on water 
raising the dead, healing the sick. We're, we're way beyond what's expected. So here's the question. What do you do when the only logical conclusion breaks all of your categories? What do you do when resurrection actually makes sense? It's the best logical conclusion out of all the evidence you have. So Thomas, Thomas, though, he will only believe if Jesus meets his conditions. If I can put my hand in his side, if I can touch it, if I can feel it. And this is tempting, isn't it? Like, um, have you ever said this? I, I will not believe unless I can, God can explain to me why my friend got cancer. Unless I can explain evils around me. Unless someone can tell me um, how the dinosaurs fit into the Genesis account. Unless God gives me some powerful experience. Unless someone can explain why God hardened Pharaoh's heart. I will not believe until this happens. And let me, let me say, um, these are good questions. These are questions we should wrestle with. These are questions I hope you're asking and, and working through. But when we turn these questions, real questions, into a test to see if Jesus is able to meet our standard, to see if Jesus qualifies for our beliefs, then, then we, when we demand that Jesus meets our conditions, we have the whole thing backwards. So let's just be clear. Um, Jesus is not up in heaven being like, oh no, they asked me the dinosaur question. <laughs> He's got that one figured out. Jesus never cowers before our unbelief. He's not afraid of the latest article or latest book, the latest tragedy. He never cowers before our unbelief, and Jesus never slavishly tries to meet our demands. He has no need for you or I to approve of him. He has no need to prove himself to us or any person. But listen to this. He so loves us that he graciously meets us even in our weakness and our doubts. So look at this, verse 26. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Shalom, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Like here, here's the scene that Caravaggio so captures. It's breathtaking. Do you, do you know, like, when you go to the, the doctor, and what do they do when you come in? They say, okay, um, please disrobe and put on this little thing, and then sit on the exam table. The doctor will be in in a minute. So you have to, like, take off your clothes and sit in, like, this weird room with funky music playing, and and you're sitting there naked, and you just you feel exposed and disrobed. Jesus just exposed himself, which is, uh, in that culture, in that time, is, is humiliating. He disrobed himself out of love, out of humility. Jesus loves Thomas enough to meet him in his doubts. And don't miss this. Even though he graciously reveals himself to Thomas, even though he exposes himself and allows himself to, to be humbled for Thomas's sake, he still rebukes his unbelief. Even though he reveals himself to us, he still rebukes our unbelief. What's his word to Thomas? Here, I'm going to meet you in this moment. I am. 
but stop doubting and believe. It's not because Jesus wants us to believe without evidence. Let me be clear on this. He gives us good evidence that he is who he claims to be, that he did miraculous miraculous things. He fulfilled dozens of prophecies. He really died on the cross. He rose again. It was witnessed by hundreds of people. And, And then the disciples who saw it firsthand were so convinced by it that they literally went on to all be suffer and die for this truth. So Jesus doesn't ask us to believe something that's without evidence or contrary to reason. But when Thomas asked to meet him on his conditions, he rebukes him because he knows that no amount of evidence will ultimately satisfy human pride. There's a point at which evidence has nothing to do with it. One more piece of evidence will not change anything. At some point, it's not... that we don't believe because of the lack of evidence is that we don't believe because we don't want to believe. So um, when I was 14, 15 years old, something like that, um, I struggled with lust. Shocking, I know. And, uh, but I mean, you know, it's in the throes of this adolescent boyhood struggle. And what made it a hundred times worse, though, is um, I, I'd read this book, this Christian book that told me, it's okay, boys struggle with that, boys will be boys, don't worry about it, just you, you'll get through this, just do what you got to do, right? And so I felt this deep conviction. On the one hand, there's this Christian book that told me it's okay. And then on the other hand, this deep conviction, like what I was doing was sin. And I didn't know what to do with that. And I remember I went to this one conference and, um, and it was, uh, our youth group went to this conference. We're at this college, uh, dormitory that we're staying in. And, um, uh, I, I'm in there and I'm in the midst of this deep, intense internal struggle. And I'm praying to the Lord, Lord, is, is lust sin or not? I really want lust. And so I, I did what, what some of you may have done. I tested God. I said, God, God, I really want to lust. And I, I, right now, I want to believe that it's not sin. So God, if, if it is sin, then I need you to make this perfectly clear to me. I need you right now in the midst of this break, I need you to send someone to bang on the door right now. And so I said that. And about five seconds later, there was this huge Bang! I was like, (laughs) I go to the door, I open the door, and nobody's there. And at that moment, I knew that sin was lust, and I've never struggled with it since. That's how the story's supposed to end. But it's not. You know what immediately happened after that? Doubt crept in. Nah, someone was like walking by with a basketball and bouncing off the door or something. Something happened. There's some way, logical way to explain this. God didn't bang on my door. No. God clearly answered my prayer. But here's the craziness. I made up the conditions, not God. And God, for whatever reason, met me in my stupid, stupid weakness. And I still... Still didn't want to believe, not because there wasn't evidence, but because I wanted to lust. I don't pretend to speak for your experience, but I wonder if you know what I'm talking about. 
Sometimes we don't believe because it doesn't make sense. And sometimes we don't believe because we just don't want to. So there's an author named Joshua Harris. Um, Back in the day, he wrote a book called I Kissed Dating Goodbye. Hated it in college because all the girls read it. I'm like, no! (laughs) Wanted to write a book called I Kissed My Date Goodbye. Um, But he's got this funny little thing that he does where he talks about when when people meet Jesus, when they they, they feel like... um, when they try and make a decision about should I accept Jesus into my life, it's one of those decisions where they feel like they're the boss and it's uh, an interview setting. So that you sit down and say, okay, okay, so uh, thanks so much for filling out the resume here. I'm checking over the details. Um, uh, under formal education, it shows nothing. Is that right? Okay. And then you go through and you, you realize, uh, um, so it says you're on a call. You're okay with being on call 24-7? Yeah, okay. But then you get to, get to the parts about... Um, now, see, I'm looking for a savior, if I'm honest, who doesn't, like, get in all the details. I just want someone to forgive me of my sins. Like, when I mess up, I want someone to love me, hug me, tell me how special I am. But I really don't want someone getting into, like, my finances or my sex life, okay? Is that okay? And so we make this deal with him. We're like, uh, Jesus, I want you. I just don't want you to, to be in my life. I don't want you to have actual control over my life. I want you to save me, and I want you to be savior of the universe and do all your magical Jesus stuff, but I don't actually want you to be Lord of my life. And we set conditions. In effect, we say, Jesus, Jesus, I want you to save me. I want you to serve me. Prove yourself to me. But here's the thing. When we come to Jesus, we come to Jesus on his terms. We're not talking about someone who needs us. We are talking about the eternal son of God. We are not in a position to evaluate him. He evaluates us. He has given us reasonable, trustworthy evidence recorded across the pages of scripture, across history itself, and across billions of lives that are transformed by him. He doesn't ask us to believe something without evidence, but neither does he accept us as his judge. He will not perform for us. He commands Thomas and he commands us, stop doubting and believe. After this experience, Thomas replies, my Lord and my God. This is one of the clearest pronouncements of Jesus' divinity in all of Scripture. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So John, like, stops the story here to say, hey, what about me? What about those who have not seen the resurrected Jesus? How are we supposed to believe? And John says, here's your answer right here. I've detailed his life, his miracles, his teaching, the eyewitness accounts right here in this book for you. So that you can believe the evidence, so that you can read it for yourself, so that you may believe. Like, here is the evidence right here, written on these pages, written on history, written on billions of lives, written on the lives of people in this very room. Life change, real life change. 
Which begs the question, have you ever really looked at the evidence? Like, have you seriously read the Gospels and asked, do I believe? Have you ever looked at his life, his teachings, the eyewitness reports? So can I just say, if you've never heard this stuff, you are in a great place today. For the next uh, five weeks, we're going to be doing this series called Who Is This? Through the Gospel of Mark, where it goes through these passages about who is Jesus? How does he reveal himself? What's the, the historic evidence? What, what's the record say about this man? But can I just say, for many, many of us, if you're here today on Easter Sunday, chances are you've heard so much of this already. And there's a mountain of evidence. But doubts have stopped you from moving forward. So I have a word for you. Stop doubting and believe. Like, I don't say this as someone who's never doubted before, who can't relate to doubts. I can. I know them too well. But I say this as one who refuses to be ruled by doubts. Notice Jesus seems to think that it's a choice. It's a choice. Am I going to believe or not? I mean, there's only so much evidence. And it's a choice that's going to determine the rest of your life, here and forever. You can make the choice, but I can't make it for you. Your family can't make it for you. So there's a, a moment in Mark chapter 9 where a father, his, his child, is having like fits and things, throwing himself into the fire, and, and he comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, heal him. Jesus, if you could heal him, it'd be great. And he's like, if I can? Like, do you believe me or not? And he prays this prayer. He says this to Jesus, which is my prayer that so many of you probably need to pray. He says, I do believe. Help me in my unbelief. Doesn't mean I don't doubt, but it means in my doubt, I'm going to reach out. I'm going to step out. I'm going to take the risk to put my life out there because the, the, I know what's behind me. I know if I just try to live life on my own and make sense of it on my own, it's not going to work. I know, I know what life looks like if I just believe in death. Now, my only hope is that Jesus rose from the dead, that he is risen. He is risen indeed. Let's pray. I don't know where you're at today, but I just want to give this time to you. If, you um, if you've never taken that step of faith, if you're still struggling with doubts, uh, let's pray. Father, God, we are f- live in a world full of doubts. Or even in our acts of faith, we're like that man who says, I do believe, help me in my unbelief. God, I pray that you meet us in our weakness. I pray that those who are here right now who haven't trusted you, who haven't reached out to you, who haven't um, even complained to you or tested you yet, pray that today would be the day. Father, I just... Repeat the prayer that I've prayed many times. And urge all those, Lord, who 
are listening who have never prayed to you or never reached out in faith that they would pray it with me. Jesus, I need you. I'm the sinner. I can't control life on my own. I can't make myself good enough. I can't do it on my own. Thank you for showing me what life looks like, for dying for me. Thank you, Lord, that you rise from the dead. And that if I trust you, I can know not by sight, but by hope, by faith, that you're going to come after me too, that you're going to change me, that you're going to change this world. So I trust you with this now, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.